Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 12th of July, 2023, just after one o'clock. I'm your host, Mike Robinson, and joining me today via video link, we've got Alex Thompson and Kavor Verratz. Uh, they're in a secret location, which I'll divulge in a minute. Uh, and Debbie Evans, uh, of course, as usual, on a Wednesday. Uh, we're going to kick off uh, with the NATO uh, summit. Now, later in the program, we're also going to be covering health issues with Debbie and uh, also, uh, Alex is going to have an update on what's going on in the Netherlands uh, with the Dutch farmers and so on. But uh, here's uh, Biden and uh, Jens Stoltenberg, the newly reinstated uh, Jens Stoltenberg, uh, loving each other yesterday in Vilnius uh, for the NATO summit. And now this uh, wonderful summit began uh, with the news that Turkey has uh, capitulated uh, to the pressure put on it to permit uh, Sweden to join. Uh, NATO. So uh, let me welcome Gavorg uh, to the program. Uh, and uh, Gavorg, I'd be interested in your thoughts on uh, what's been going on with Turkey and why they've decided uh, to allow Sweden to join. Well, greetings, greetings, Mike, and greetings to all our dear viewers. It's it's a pleasure to be with you again. And uh, with this uh, summit and Turkey's behavior uh, prior to the summit, there's, there's a lot really to be said because Right before the elections, there, there was a situation uh, in Turkey where the rhetoric of the Turkish uh, Minister of Interior was completely uh, anti-American and uh, full of almost hate speech towards the United States. He went on uh, as far as saying that whoever produces anything towards the American interests in Turkey is a, is, a, is a traitor to the nation and will have to be fought and will have to be eradicated from, from Turkey. And uh, other statements like that were uh, very prominent. But uh, then suddenly this change, ha change happened and, and when we see Turkey uh, behaving very differently, uh, that was... Uh, pretty clear already during the uh, elections and in the aftermath of the elections that Erdogan was going to start leaning pro-Western because his uh, appointments, especially at the key positions of the foreign minister, for instance, or the uh, minister of finance, uh, clearly showed that uh, he was no longer going to pursue his anti-Western agenda as he used to. But now with the summit, we see that the change has been uh, complete and uh, the direction that Turkey is taking is, 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 is even a more rapid and strong uh, towards the West than it used to be. Uh, okay, well, look, we'll, we'll come on to the detail of this in a second. Before we do, let's just reveal your secret location. Now, I have to admit that this, this would be my idea of hell, uh, Alex and Gavorg, uh, but uh, just briefly tell us where you are. We are in Duras on the coast of Albania, and you might or not might not believe it, but that is actually the view from the balcony behind us. Now, because of the camera not coping with this uh, sunshine, it's white out behind us. But if we uh, lean out of the picture for a couple of seconds, the camera will, will recover, and you will see the deep blue Adriatic waters from which we enjoyed some fresh grilled fish last night. More adverts for the Albanian tourist board to follow in extra time, but seriously, a very recommended country for a number of cultural reasons where people treat each other very decently. But uh, on to Geborg's main segment here, uh, because Geborg is going to get into the nitty gritty now of NATO, Russia and Turkey, Turkey being a neighbor of his 
and a particular focus. I would ask viewers not to despair at the amount of Russian text on the screen because the very reason we've got Gebor commenting now uh, is because he's watching intelligent commentary coming from Russian sources and Russian language sources, which we don't get in the West. So with that, I'll hand over to Gebor to set the scene. All right. As we've uh, started already discussing this uh, situation with Turkey, I would like to say that, um, as I've said already, that prior to the elections, all of the rhetoric that Turkey has begun its elections and pre-election period with was radically anti-American and generally anti-Western. Uh, they were trying to build an alliance with Russia, or at least they've been presenting uh, such an alliance is taking place. And uh, that, of course, had to do with the gas trade deals that Turkey had with Russia, running uh, the Russian gas through Azerbaijani pipelines and Georgia into Turkey. We're going to run a clip silently in the background as Gevor continues to speak, uh, which uh, will show some of the detail of this uh, anti-American rhetoric. Yes, this, uh, this person uh, on this clip, it is uh, Suleyman Soylu, a man who was uh, Turkish uh, for, minister for, for interior. And uh, here he says that it is our first opportunity to uh, have caught the West in its weak point. We've, we have caught out America uh, for the first time in the last hundred years. And... Uh, yeah, by, by the grace and mercy of Allah, he says, and we're, we're in the strongest position as a country in the last 300 years. So with the help of democracy, or whichever thing they call democracy, well, they're going to become uh, a different nation, a stronger nation, and they're now at a turning point of uh, saving the world from oppression and the evil doings of, of the West. That's, that's Suleiman Soylu right before the elections. And uh, generally, the whole rhetoric was like that. It wasn't mild. It, was, it wasn't softly anti-Western. It was, it was radical. However, this changed. And uh, as, as we see with the summit, now Erdogan says that there's, uh, there's a way to go with, with the United States. And uh, I haven't seen any uh, commentary from the American side yet on the talks between Erdogan and Biden. There ha hasn't been a release from Blinken or anyone for of, 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 of importance. However, uh, the uh, elections in Turkey with uh, the victory that Erdogan's had, and then many do call that um, elections uh, rigged and uh, quite, quite difficult to accept uh, to this day. However, the general uh, understanding is that because Erdogan is changing his position on, on, on the relations with the West, uh, the Turkish society can live with that, and uh, they'll they'll actually uh, let that let that pass, as it were. You've got this quotation we'll bring up on screen now at the bottom. It's a Russian translation, but uh, just go through this quickly. Yes, well, uh, this says that, uh, and that's again Soylu from uh, the interior says Turkey has uh, achieved a state or approached a line that whoever continues to advance an American-oriented policy in Turkey will be uh, declared a traitor. This is just how many months ago? Well, just three, three months ago, uh, really. That's, uh, and you had comment on this. Uh, Let's bring this on screen. 
Right. So, yes, well, the, uh, the comment that I made back then was that uh, the uh, pro-American policies that uh, the Minister of Interior talked about, uh, the actors of that, or the proponents of those policies were, of course, the Democrats in Turkey, the Kurds, those who want to keep Turkey in NATO, who want a stable monetary policy and so forth, and, and of course the minorities. They are interested in democracy because that's the way for them to secure their rights in the country somehow. But what we see now is that uh, the, the Turkish government is making a U-turn on their, on their pro-Russian uh, pro, uh, and anti-Western uh, rhetoric. The interesting bit uh, there was uh, initially apparent when uh, the Minister of Finance of Turkey was uh, appointed uh, someone called Mehmet Shimshek. And that, that person, he's, well, first of all, he's very tightly uh, connected with the IMF and he's been rewarded by the IMF for being one of their exemplary uh, members and proponents of their uh, of their policies and he's reversed uh, he was what well, he was called in Turkey to reverse the entire monetary uh, policy in the country because we uh, we know that prior to these elections Turkish lira started depreciating very very rapidly because of the particular kinds of uh, economic mechanisms that uh, that the Turks have uh, employed but now that has changed with with the adoption of new IMF policies so we, we just showed two uh, extracts of you commenting on Russian on soil being very uh, anti-american at the time uh, but where does that take us to the Vilnius summit which Mike will be co co covering in a moment yes well um, the change now that, that we see now also it's important to notice uh, that uh, it did bring about some Russian reaction and is going to it is going to impact the Russian uh, uh, Russian Turkish relations quite seriously because uh, the uh, the Russian well a member of the uh, Federation Council in Russia has made already a statement about uh, Turkey behaving in an unfriendly manner and Turkey becoming uh, and only he said we say it for the first time that, that Turkey is becoming an unfriendly state to us. Uh, meanwhile, at the Vilnius summit, here's a close-up. Uh, what struck you about this Biden Erdogan handshake? Well, uh, I don't know. Nothing struck me about this, but it reminded me of the Soviet gerontokratia, the, uh, the rulership and uh, the, the leadership of the elders, as it were. And in Brezhnev's periods, if you if you if, if you had a look at Politburo, they were all well in their seventies, and uh, this is something that we're seeing now: Putin, Erdogan, Biden, all around. Uh, Macron's wife. We have a couple of minutes left in the segment, but you just want to mention things to viewers here. Well, yes, uh, of course, there was a lot of pressure uh, applied to Turkey for for their um, change in policy, and here we see that. Uh, one of the uh, one of the tools that was used is uh, putting pressure on uh, Erdogan's son, son Bilal, who's been um, accused of, of corruption, and that was made known in the press. Reuters writes about it, and of course, this could go further if Erdogan didn't comply with uh, with, with, with what was necessary. And then the Turks stuck their oar into the Crimea. 
they have. There was this very interesting meeting right prior to the summit in Vilnius, the meeting of uh, Erdogan and Zelensky. And they have been discussing the relations uh, between Turkey and uh, Ukraine, where Erdogan has declared that his position of supporting Ukraine unilaterally was very dedicated and committed. And um, they've been supporting allegedly Ukraine for the whole time. And also Erdogan has mentioned the right of the Crimean Tatars or Turkic people in Crimea currently occupied by Russia, their right of self-determination. Uh, and uh, prior to that statement, he's made a statement about the uh, territorial integrity of Ukraine. So basically what this shows is that Turkey is uh, really looking forward to a role in the future um, status of Crimea and the status of the Crimean Tatars on the peninsula. Yeah. Okay. Well, look, thank you very much for that, Gavorg. Uh, we'll come on to that in more detail in extra, but we're going to uh, move on now to the, the rest of what was going on in Vilnius. And of course, uh, who is there but uh, Zelensky? And he was glad handing with everybody, Rishi Sunak, but also uh, the German uh, Chancellor here and uh, a number of other people. Of course, of course he was. Uh, but he wasn't terribly excited about the uh, final communique uh, or what was coming out because this is what he had to say about it. It's unprecedented and uh, sorry, it's unprecedented and absurd when a time frame is not set for uh, Ukraine joining NATO, uh, neither for the invitation nor for Ukraine's membership. Uh, and he went on to say, "I believe that NATO uh, in a NATO that doesn't hesitate, doesn't waste time, and doesn't look back at an aggressor." And of course, he's absolutely dying to be. Uh, for Ukraine to be a formal member of NATO so that Article 5 can be triggered. Uh, but that wasn't all that was going on at Vilnius. Uh, there were also agreements uh, with respect to Asia because, of course, the NATO, the NATO 2030 policy is to expand into, NATO, into Asia. Uh, and so uh, Stoltenberg uh, agreed and signed an agreement with uh, North with South Korea here. <laughs> nearly said North Korea. That would have been... Uh, <laughs> Quite an incredible situation of South Korea. Uh, and also Japan Japan is also going to be signing uh, what's being described as an individual tailored partnership plan with NATO. Uh, this is all about tightening relationships with the, uh, with the alliance. Uh, so let's have a, a picture of them all getting together, all the Asian axis here uh, for New Australia, New Zealand, uh, Japan and South Korea. Uh, and uh, well, this hasn't gone down so, so well with everybody. So this is uh, a report in Pearls and Irritations. Uh, NATO's provocative, provocative lurch eastward, eastward sorry, and the supreme fool, uh, Jens Stoltenberg. This is by Paul Keating, the former Australian Prime Minister. Uh, so let's just look at what he's saying here. NATO's continued existence after and at the end of the Cold War has already denied peaceful unity to the broader Europe, uh, the promise of which the end of the Cold War held open. And besides, the Europeans have been fighting each other for the better part of 300 years, including giving the, re giving the rest of uh, us two world wars in the last hundred. Uh, he went on to say, exporting that malicious poison to Asia would be akin to Asia welcoming the plague upon itself. Uh, with all of Asia's recent development amid its long and latent poverty, uh, that promise would be compromised by having anything to do with the militarism of Europe uh, and militarism egged on by the United States. Uh, and he said, all, of all the people on the international stage, the supreme fool among them is Jens Stoltenberg, the current Secretary General of NATO. Uh, in February, he was drawing parallels between Russia's assault on Ukraine and China saying, 
Uh, we should not make the same mistake with China. Uh, this is uh, the China, sorry, that is that China uh, should be superintended by the West and strategically circumscribed. Uh, Stoltenberg, in his jaundiced view, overlooks the fact that China represents 20% of humanity and now possesses the largest economy in the world and has no record of attacking other states, including, uh, sorry, unlike the United States, whose bidding Stoltenberg is happy to do. So, Alex, very briefly, uh, what are your thoughts on that? I think that it's dawning on uh, Asia watchers that China is in a different league to Russia. Now, Georg and I differ in views on many things, including uh, Russia's uh, role in the Ukraine war. But I think both of us uh, would see eye to eye on this, that you don't take on China in the same way that you take on, on Russia. And this at the time when Western think pieces in defense journals in Washington are calling for Stoltenberg to be awarded the, the Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> well, that, that would be about right. Uh, but let's bring bring Rusi on screen then, because uh, this is their attitude with respect to the cluster bombs issue. Uh, giving Ukraine cluster munitions is necessary, legal and morally justified. Uh, so they're saying, in summary, therefore, the objections to cluster bomb provision uh, in Ukraine are militarily dangerous, legally misleading and morally questionable, drawing a false equivalence between Russian and Ukrainian use cases. The use of such weapons by the armed forces of Ukraine on their own territory at their own discretion, against fortifications in open countryside and against hostile forces who routinely fire Soviet-era cluster munitions and other highly unreliable uh, munitions into civilian cities would, therefore, be consistent with the principles of proportionality and discrimination. Uh, they go on to say that uh, cluster munition uh, provision will not only increase Ukrainian military effectiveness against dug-in Russian forces, but will also help alleviate Ukrainian and wider NATO ammunition shortfalls and barrel constraints. That's quite an admission. Uh, since Russia's current strategy relies on outlasting Western military support capacity, improving the sustainability of Ukraine's artillery capabilities would also increase the incentive for Russia to end the conflict. Therefore, the US is justified in providing Ukraine with cluster munitions uh, to help liberate its territory, which is the only assured means of restoring the right of Ukraine's civilian population uh, to live in peace. Um, Quick thoughts on that as well, I think we need from you, Alex and Gavork. Cluster munitions for peace is pretty Orwellian stuff. Uh, for those who missed the background, the White House has uh, green-lighted the supply of these banned weapons to the Ukrainian armed forces. The British government has not resiled from its previous position that that's contrary to international humanitarian law. Uh, Gavork, 30 seconds from you, because among your other duties, you are now an uh, uh, accredited chaplain to the armed forces of Ukraine. You see horrible injuries and the effects on families. Although you take the Ukrainians' position here, uh, what do you think about uh, the West supplying these dreadful munitions? Well, I'll say, I'll say the following. We cannot justify uh, murders and killings and we cannot justify war. But when, when there's a war going on and when there's, there's an invading force that is Russia, that has all the supplies and everything and has no moral limits to what it does. And Ukraine being the weaker side, reliant on all sorts of uh, aid that's coming from, uh, from the West, I think that it is justified that Ukraine will recourse to all the resources possible to secure and protect their people. Because uh, genocides, like what, well, genocides in the smaller scale sense, massacres, uh, like what happened in Irpin, Bucha, and uh, other places, Kharkiv and Melitopol, those should be prevented. And the only way 
uh, to prevent the Russians from committing them again is to drive them out of the Ukrainian territory. That's my position and uh, made no secret ever. Okay, well, thank you for that. Now, uh, let's uh, change topics then and uh, move on to health. And Debbie. Good afternoon. Yes, thank you. Uh, well, just to set the scene for my segment, uh, a story in the uh, Observer and Guardian, it was an Observer uh, study in the Guardian. Very interesting. It's naive to think that this is in the best interests of the NHS, how big farmers' millions are influencing healthcare. Interesting to see a Northampton GP, Dr. Yasir Javed. He's received £483,561 since 2019 direct from pharmaceutical companies and more than 43 million was paid to healthcare individuals in 2022. So lots of collaborations between pharma. And there's a couple of graphs on the next slide that will just indicate, um, so you can see there on the left, the drug company payments to healthcare organization and individuals has almost doubled in the past eight years. And the one on the right, the 15 biggest drug company donors to the UK's health sector. So you can see GlaxoSmithKline um, ahead. But check out that article. It's a very interesting article, which brings me neatly on to it's that time of the uh, month and it's the MHRA board meeting. But I had to fight to get the joining link. And I only received the joining link after four a flurry of four emails to the MHRA. I received the link 40 minutes prior to the meeting. So it was kind of almost as though maybe they didn't want me to be there. And I'll be talking about the MHRA more, but I did I did make it. <laughs> and as you can see, uh, we're not allowed to screenshot, we're not allowed to take films, but I did make it to the MHRA board meeting. So what did they talk about in the board meeting only yesterday? Well, I can tell you that you'll be very pleased to know that they talked about all sorts of things. And I've just put a compilation on one screenshot here for you. So they talked about the yellow card tick box. They talked about the O'Shaughnessy review, tick. They talked about the Cumberledge report, tick. They talked about sodium valparate, tick. They even talked about the Patient Safety Commissioner and Her Majesty's Government's response to Professor Dame Angela McLean's pro-innovation regulation of technologies review. And they talked, of course, about Stephen Lightfoot. Now, I'm going to be talking more about what the MHRA did talk about in their board meeting later in Extra. But the things that you'll notice that they didn't talk about were vaccine injuries, deaths that um, are due to unlicensed products, um, and some a few things that we're going to see moving forward. But one thing that they did talk about was the MHRA's corporate plan. This that they launched only in July. Now, what does the corporate plan say? Well, what are the, well, should I say, what are the strategic priorities? So here you can see, if you look at the ones in green, so one, two, three, four, maintaining public trust through transparency and proactive communication, freeze the screen to see the rest because pretty much it's all, as Alex would say, word soup. Um, talking about maintaining public trust, uh, that seems to be the most important thing. One thing they didn't talk about on the MHRA board meeting was this, the, this article that I saw in The Guardian about uh, a patient has died and three were hospitalised in a science chemotherapy incident. Now, the MHRA have launched an investigation into this. And Alison Cave, as you can see, says um, that patient safety is always, of course, of public concern and a priority. 
But dispersion of this, these drugs differed from a licensed product. So there's a big investigation on this. Another thing that the MHRA board meeting didn't talk about was long vax. So we've all heard of long COVID. And now apparently, this has come from the New York Post, we have long vax. And you can see that the symptoms there are pretty similar to long COVID in inverted commas. Persistent headaches, intense tiredness, irregular heart rate, abnormal blood pressure. And although we're told that cases are very rare, uh, we're told that this has to be looked at in more detail. And it's not just the uh, the New York Post. Uh, sorry. Yeah. The New York Post that's carrying the, uh, the story. It's also the Daily Mail. And you can see that Harvard and Yale scientists are probing a new condition. They're saying that they don't want the issue to be seized upon by the anti-vax movement that has gained momentum. Well, I would suggest that perhaps they're not wanting the vaccine injured either to be um, looking at long COVID. So they weren't talking about that in the MHRA board meeting. And I've just done one little screenshot of symptoms in case anybody wants to take it and tweet it and share it and just inform people that long vax is a thing now. It obviously exists. Um, the other things that the MHRA didn't talk about, uh, something that I'm very concerned about, more injections this time, there's a new vaccine hope for Down syndrome people who they say are more at risk of developing Alzheimer's. Now, I'm very concerned because this article carries a picture of a baby. So I'm asking myself, are we looking at jabbing Down syndrome babies um, in case they develop uh, dementia or Alzheimer's at a later date? I don't know, but it, it's concerning. And also another staying on the baby theme and staying on injections. I saw this story and the NHS are now rolling out genomic screening immediately for all preterm babies and low weight uh, low weight babies. Now, this is for retinopathy of prematurity. What concerns me is, and, and I'm not a paediatrician and um, I am not a paediatric nurse, but it would appear that retinopathy of prematurity, which can cause blindness in babies, is really if they're under three pounds in weight or if they're born before 30 weeks gestation, it goes in um, it goes in stages, it's assessed in stages. But the treatment that they're talking about rolling out is a monoclonal antibody that will be administered by an injection directly into the eye of these babies. So I just want parents to be aware that for babies that are low low birth weights or that are preterm, do you know what your baby's being screened for? So that's on the NHS website too. So that's just a little concern over newborn babies. Okay, Debbie, thank you very much for that. Now let's uh, move on. If you like what the UK Column does, you would like to support us, uh, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there. Uh, you could pick something up at the UK Column shop. Uh, but please do share anything you find on the various platforms, especially ukcolumn.org and ukcolumnextracts.co.uk. Now, tomorrow at 1 p.m. Uh, in the interview slot, we'll be uh, putting out an interview that I've done with uh, Matt Campbell. Uh, and uh, th this is about uh, the subject we were talking about, I think, on Friday's program. Uh, his aims to get uh, an inquest into his brother's death following 9-11. Uh, uh, that inquest has been denied. Uh, by the Solicitor General, and uh, he is going to take that to judicial review. So uh, join us at 1 p.m. tomorrow for that. 
Uh, Debbie's latest blog is up uh, in two seconds. Debbie, what have you got on this this week? NHS special and where are your children going to be looked after if they're not very well? Brilliant. And uh, Debbie, uh, the Vaccine Injured uh, Legal Fund? Yeah, I would just say to anybody, please don't donate to the big charities. If you don't know where your donation's going to, this is an incredibly worthwhile cause. Plenty of people with vaccine injuries can't seek legal help. We need more donors, please. So um, please look at that page if you possibly can. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much, Debbie. Now, uh, at the Vilnius uh, conference, uh, I was a bit confused because uh, here's Rishi uh, and uh, Alex, he was speaking to Mark Rutter. And uh, so... I was a bit surprised by that. Why is uh, he there representing the Netherlands? I thought something had changed. Uh, yes, allegedly Brexit. But then on one of my regular jaunts to Brussels the other day, I was speaking to a young uh, civil servant of the Dutch Ministry of Defence who said, you British uh, are so re- regretful that you've left the European Union and you can't participate in ESCO, the Uni- European Union military uh, unification projects, but you're trying to get there bilaterally through the back door. So... That might be a QED of that. But Rutter's out on his ear, as uh, we're about to see uh, after that. Uh, so we don't have time to cover the whole collapse of the Dutch government, but we cannot uh, mention it, uh, cannot leave it without mention. So these will be in the show notes. People can use <clears throat> machine translation software to translate the links that they'll find there. But NRC Handelsblad, a bit like the Financial Times, uh, reports that the problem, that the straw that broke the camel's back in this four-party coalition and caused it to fall, Uh, was that a smaller member of the coalition, the Christian Union, uh, absolutely refused to limit the numbers of people brought to the Netherlands uh, on family reunification visas uh, after the asylum case of a family, a a relative, had been granted. This against the will of the larger parties that represent secular business interests in the case of Rutter's own party um, or light uh, nominally Christian interests, the Christian Democrats. Uh, so the, the op- opposition came from what we'll see on screen now, Christian Uni, representing the evangelical Protestants, not the reformed Protestants. There's a, a bit fine difference, but a huge difference in politics here. So Christian Uni here has a, a blog from uh, their member of the uh, of Parliament, Mr. Seder, Don Seder, as far back as February. Uh, and Christian Uni there, uh, uh, through the person of their member of Parliament, saying, we absolutely cannot postpone family reunification. This was from February. This has been bubbling under the surface for months. And here, uh, rather surprisingly, uh, Mr. Seder says that uh, judges would throw out the measure, probably correct, actually, to give him his due. He knew that Dutch courts would say, no, family reunification is an absolute right. You cannot delay the timing or reduce the numbers of those who are coming uh, to join family members who've been given asylum. Um here, another piece which we people can find by uh, going to the show notes and using a translation software application. Uh, we see here that a representative of the Christian Uni Party, which has gone far left now, far, far further than you expect from a party of the name Christian, um, Nathaniel Post, who leads their youth wing, says here uh, in a tense dialogue with a representative of the former coalition partner, the VVD, Rutter's Party, which have now fallen out. Uh, he says, we couldn't carry on muggling through like this. Uh, we don't think there's any need to reduce migration. That for, they uh, opposed the idea from the bigger parties that there would be A and B category uh, immigrants or, or refugees, sorry, uh, where category A was fleeing persecution for their sexuality and category B was fleeing war zones and the latter would have restrictions on family reunifications. Uh, and this causes even um, Ferry von Weinen, who's the representative of the governing VVD party, 
to say, I don't know what you're talking about. Everyone knows you can't get a place in school or hospital because of this. Uh, the consequence, as reported by Head Perola, along with all the other newspapers, is that Mark Rutter is leaving politics, finally. Uh, he's been in governing the country for th 13 years through four coalitions, but the last of them, really, uh, the unprecedented split here uh, was that uh, finally the, the, the smaller Christian party uh, not the most conservative one, but has gone so far left that it was uh, joining D66, the very radical anti-religion party, in saying we absolutely must have as many uh, migrants and refugees, particularly refugees, as turn up on our shores and their relatives. They've got human rights to bring their families with them, anyone under 25 who's associated with them closely. Um, just to cover the farmers uh, en passant as well, Europe Reloaded was one of the several um, uh, sites that covered and then uh, retracted uh, this idea that there'd been a, a state of emergency declared in The Hague last week. For the umpteenth time in the last two years, there was a mass descent of tractors upon the central Hague area to protest in front of Parliament. Uh, it was, what was actually um, uh, the truth of the matter was it was a note befell, an emergency order from the mayor to clear the area around Parliament and stop the tractors coming towards Parliament. Not a state of emergency, but... Sadly, the farmers, you know, they're just getting ignored now, and it was not them that caused the government to fall. Uh, their their well-known woes was not the problem. It was immigration. And people wanting to know more on Dutch farmers in general, uh, I would point them to this piece written by a deep specialist in agricultural policy and health on the very excellent Brownstone Institute website called The Future of Traditional Farming and Healthcare in the Netherlands. Here you get a bundle altogether of what's being done to that Dutch farming and how corporate uh, interests have completely taken over the country, particularly in its agriculture. Uh, so are you saying, Alex, that the Dutch farming issue had no impact on the fall of the government? Sadly, that is the case, because the um, urbanised and more left-leaning half of the country, including a lot of the Christians who are a big, I keep going on about religion in Dutch politics, but it's important, much more important than in other Western European countries. Um, the, the whole left-leaning and urban section of society has determined uh, that farming has to change, probably has to be reduced, some would say to zero, and they have very little sympathy indeed for growing farmer suicides in the Netherlands. Yeah, okay. Okay, thank you for that. Now, Debbie, let's come back to you. Uh, and I suppose a related topic, uh, to particularly farming, and we're talking about uh, land grabs in the UK. Yeah, well, we're talking about an attack on animals, an attack on farmers and land grabs. So I caught this story in Sky, on Sky News about a daffodil extract that's going to be fed to cows um, in order to reduce methane production. But then I went to look at daffodils because my mum had always told me that daffodils were poisonous. So I went to have a look and uh, I found a site poison control. Daffodils beautiful, but toxic. And it would appear that all parts of a daffodil contain lysine, and this is toxic. It's especially toxic actually to animals and it can damage their liver, make them feel sick. And it's also got oxalates in it. So when you eat it, it, it can sting the mouth and sting the esophagus. Um, so that was quite concerning. And we do grow daffodils down in Cornwall and we do grow da daffodils in the Isles of Scilly. So unless they're thinking of breeding a new daffodil that's not toxic, it's a bit of a concern. So I went to look at um, an ITV report that's been talking about farmers who have been losing their grazing land because Natural England, we've reported on this before, but Natural England 
want to reclaim the land and use it for rewilding and scientific special interest sites. Now, the farmers themselves don't know, they, they really don't know why this is happening. And you can see a couple of quotes here, Eric Murley. Um, they, this, this family's worked the land near Pendine for 50 years. Um, another chap, Edward Richardson from the charity farm Cornwall says, I've worked this area now for 13 or 14 years. I've never seen farmers so upset. They don't know what they've done wrong. Well, they haven't done anything wrong. But what we can clearly see is that this is happening in different areas. In Devon, for example, they're reclaiming agricultural and grazing land for solar, solar panels. So in different parts of the country. So looking at Cornwall, we've seen again, we go back to lithium mining. We've talked about lithium mining before. And now Imeries, who's a French company, have got an 80% stake in British lithium. I don't know how quite that makes them British lithium if there's an 80% French stake, but it makes them the largest producer in Europe. So we can see a revival coming back of mining. Um, uh, it's going to be repurposed. So we're going to the dream of Cornwall is going to be now mining where we were before uh, a whole mining revival. So we used to mine clay and um, tin, but now we're looking at lithium. And we've said about the dangers of lithium. Um, a couple of weeks ago. And tragically, just recently, there was a story on Sky about a family of four that had died because of um, a fire due to a lithium battery. Now, it's not just um, families and people in general that are worried about the safety and the fire risks of lithium iron batteries, but also a parliamentary question has been asked. So Maria Miller has raised the question of storage um, and warehousing, because warehousing is exploding. And even e-bike shops, they have been exploding too. So the fire risk is absolutely huge. So we seem to be seeing land that's been used for agriculture and grazing repurposed into the green agenda. Okay, thank you, Debbie. Now, Alex, we'll quickly come back to the Netherlands and other political uh, developments there, not farming related uh, with opposition parties. Yes, the Dutch uh, spy agency, AIVD, roughly equivalent to MI5 or the FBI, um, has decided to uh, it put out this report uh, on anti-institutional extremism. So we had, first of all, in the British context, violent extremism. Then we had, under David Cameron, non-violent extremism, which is having an opinion. And now we have anti-institutional extremism. Uh, and the cover sh shot that was shown there, by the way, was. Uh, from the, the tourist town of Vera or very nearby the village of Frauenpolder, one of the many places where as you drive around the Netherlands, you will see stickers saying that the virus, the media is the virus, um, the public journalists are fake news, watch out for the Great Reset. This is what's being branded anti-institutional anti extremism. The definition in the footnotes, interestingly enough, for those who read Dutch, they'll read, enjoy the full uh, glory of this, but footnote three defines uh, a conspiracy theory as a specific form of disinformation or misinformation, which of course NATO covered in its communique, in which, in a specific form called a conspiracy theory, people are convinced that certain events or situations are steered secretly behind the screen, uh, beside the scenes, by powerful groups with uh, evil intent. That is the first time, and I'm not surprised the Dutch have done it because they like doing these uh, transparent things, they, they have attempted to define what a conspiracy theory is. 
there's also a footnote there saying cultural Marxism is a theory, which David Scott would rip into them, of course. This uh, shot from the report, which came out, as I say, before the government fell, but this is from civil servants anyway, albeit a very politicised one, shows an inverted pyramid. If you flip that so that overheight at the bottom goes to the top, which is government, you can see that for the first time a Western intelligence agency has said that between the citizens, burgers, and the government overheight, remember this should be bottom to top to be more honest, you have two ladders going up or down, telling, uh, mediating between the government and citizens in what they call the democratic uh, order, which is what they are there to protect in the Dutch and German spook system, they say so. And these two ladders are media and science. So if people lose trust in media and science, uh, then that's when the, the, the fun starts, as far as they're concerned. They even admit towards the end of the report here that people getting uh, redacted files on recent scandals, such as what happened to those who were pursued for um, allegedly misclaimed child benefit, which caused great misery, uh, or those who were told that they couldn't find out information about gas fields in the northeast in Groningen and all the problems that caused with people's land. Uh, this, uh, the, the AIVD finished basically with a, with a, a limp-wristed uh, retorts the Dutch government saying it's in your hands. Uh, you lot could actually be more transparent, and uh, that would be you know, an end of the matter. Uh, so the, the Dutch government is really, at, at institutional level, is out for anti-institutional extremists. That would be us, Mike. Yes, indeed. Well, keep going. Yes, I think what we'll do in the interest of time is we'll leave the German section uh, of this to extra time. So we'll why don't we scoot forward to. The Bank of England, uh, but in extra time, if we manage to get to it among all the, all the other interesting things we have to cover, we'll see that uh, the Dutch and German governments in parallel have made moves, which I hope we may be able to cover in extra time, to ban the one party in each case that seriously takes a stand against what, in one case, the, they call the cartel of parties. Okay, brilliant. Thank you, Alex. Well, let's uh, bring them on screen. The uh the Stooges, uh, there they are, Bank of England. Uh, and of course, they're very excited because they've uh, released their latest mon uh, monetary report. Uh, let's have a look at what they're saying about interest rates. Here we go. Global interest rates have increased sharply since December 2021, they're saying. Uh, but uh, don't worry, because it's all at hand. Uh, so here's the financial stability report graphic. And they say that the global economic outlook is highly uncertain uh, and the risk environment is changing. They do appreciate that households and businesses are under pressure from higher borrowing costs, but don't worry your pretty little heads because UK banks remain strong enough to support households and businesses, even if economic conditions are worse than expected. Uh, so don't worry that something like 1 million people, according to their report, are heading towards seeing a £500 a month rise in their mortgage repayments. That's nothing to worry about because the banks are there to look after you. They will make sure that they will extend the term of your mortgage or they might turn the mortgage in, in, into an interest-only mortgage so that by the time you finish paying it, you won't still won't own your house. Uh, don't worry about that. They're, they're there to, to help us. So let's have a look at this quote from them. Uh, Although the proportion of income that UK households overall spend on mortgage payments is expected to rise, it should remain below the peak uh, experienced in the global financial crisis in the early 1990s. And just remember that if we think back to the early 1990s, uh, we were seeing something like 4,000 uh, homes being repossessed every week. Uh, and uh, so uh, the, the, again, there are Quite convinced that isn't going to happen again. At the moment, it's sitting something like 400 per week, uh, but we're not so going to see it rising to 4,000, they say, because the banks are going to, they're resilient, uh, people are resilient, uh, and everybody's going to uh, be okay. Uh, and if you believe that, uh, you'll believe anything. So uh, the Bank of England uh, trying to dig themselves out of hole and failing miserably uh, will continue to report on this. 
Um, okay, where does that take us to? Uh, that takes us to France. Alex, what's going on there? You can see uh, the results on screen now of a vote taken by the French Senate, the upper house, and you can see that only 17 out of over 300 votes were against. And you might think that this was something uncontroversial here, uh, but it, what this was was the renewal uh, of the multi-annual military framework law, uh, the military program law for the uh, period 24, 20, 24 to 2030. If you look closely at the logo, you will see that the French Ministry of Defence is called the French Ministry of the Armed Forces. These are may means all three service branches, not just the land army. Uh, they, they are unashamed of this now. They are the ministry that champions the armed forces' interests. That's what's gone through the upper house, much like the uh, recent French Senate vote that we covered on spying on people's phones without so much as a squeak. Um, here's what the fuss is about in a, a few channels like Sud Radio that have bothered to dig into it. When it was going through Parliament, the Assemblée Nationale, this text attracted very little debate. Uh, so what's on screen is the part of the law that's just been passed and which will ironically enter into force on Bastille Day uh, this Friday, uh, which will revise the framework law for the ministry for, for the armed forces. So the law that's passed has got this section which says that Chapter 2, General Principles of the Framework Law on the Armed Forces, will be amended to read that if there is a real or foreseen threat, anticipated threat, so, uh, that uh, menaces the essential act, uh, activities of, the nat of national life, et cetera, et cetera, territorial integrity, the institutions of the republic, which means the politicians are about to, to fall, uh, or uh, of other natures justifying uh, international efforts, the usual get-out clause, then they will be able to, you'll see it halfway through the text here, to requisition or to commandeer, you can also translate it, but you can also just use the French word requisition in English. All persons, whether physical, natural persons, or legal entities, and all goods and services required uh, by ministerial decree. Uh, the decree will uh, uh, even be able to go out to, to be issued, not just by the prime minister, but as we see at the bottom of this extract, that the prime minister can tell other administrative or military bodies that they have the power to commandeer French persons, including citizens abroad. Uh, those who are requisitioned or commandeered will, be, uh, will uh, be told that they have to serve the nation in this capacity. There'll be some kind of compensation afterwards, but they'll be selected here for their physical and psychological aptitude, as you can see on screen at the moment, and their professional savvy and technological know-how. Um, and if it's a company, they have to give all their resources and do work for the state. Um, this is uh, the extent of who can be commandeered. It will be uh, anyone in France, any French citizen anywhere else in the world. And if they say, go away, I want nothing to do with France, they are risking a jail sentence or half a million euro fine if the French can get them one way or another by extradition or catching them on the return to see their family on a death or something. Uh, all companies with their um, uh, presence in France and uh, all French vessels, wherever they are, and there's the fine, half a million euros or five years in jail. Uh, so France can commandeer everything now in the grey zone between peace and war because the, 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 the new legal text makes quite clear, as well as the associated framework for the French military uh, in, the front, in the footsteps of the British strategy now, uh, that between war and peace and civil war, there's all kinds of threats to the state not further specified. Uh, and are we talking about them lifting people off the streets effectively? I cannot see any reason why that would not be the case, actually. You know, the Ukraine and Russia during the current war have had footage 
emerge of men being grabbed, even old men and, and teenage boys being grabbed off the streets. I don't see any uh, block to that in the text of the law or in the morale of those who command the French armed forces. I think it's perfectly possible. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Uh, now let's move on to the UK and, and well, psychological operations here against UK citizens. So uh, this is Influence Wargaming Conference 2023. This is the second uh, conference of its type held by the Defence Science and Technology Laboratory. Uh, and uh, this is all about furthering the thinking on wargaming and influence effects. It was held at uh, Sandhurst at the Royal Military Academy, Sandhurst, and was hosted by the Defence Science and Technology Laboratory, uh, the Development Concepts and Doctrine Centre, uh, and the Joint Information Activities Group. Uh, it was attended by more than 150 military and civilian defence officials, uh, as well as representatives uh, from other government bodies. Um, so uh, let's just uh, turn that upside down so that you can see what uh, was on their little poster that they were playing with. Uh, now, this uh, we might make fun of this, uh, in some ways, but actually it's very, very serious. And one of the things we might make fun of is, uh, is this, uh, because uh, this uh, delegates, uh, they say, were also able to take home a card-driven game. And there it is. It's called POP, exclamation mark, which means powers of persuasion, um, which they can use to create influence efforts uh, and achieve a to achieve a given goal. Uh, so what is this about? Well, let's uh, understand uh, what it's about, because here is, uh, well, this is Ben Wallace, of course, Secretary of State for War, uh, who was presented with the Influence Wargaming Handbook. Uh, this was developed by a team led by uh, Colin Marston, who's on screen there. So let's have a look at the uh, Influence Wargaming Handbook. Here it is. Uh, let's just have a look at what it says. Uh, human behavior is a central concern of much defense and security activity. Uh, and operational success frequently depends upon influencing the attitudes, perceptions, and behavior of different audiences. Uh, it goes on to say the Influence Wargaming, Wargaming Handbook uh, seeks to explain how wargaming can be used to better represent and explore influence effects across a range of policy, force development, planning, education, and training problems. So what they're talking about is using wargames to develop uh, uh, behavioral techniques to use on various people, including the public, in order to uh, make sure that you have the right defense outcomes at the end of the day. Let's continue with this. Uh, it says the importance of audiences is recognized in UK defense doctrine with the addition of integrated action into uh, to the two existing tenets of mission command and maneuverist approach. Now that might seem like word salad, but let's continue. Uh, it says integrated action can be described as the audience-centric orchestration of military activities across all operational domains, synchronized with non-military activities to influence the attitude and behavior of selected audiences necessary to achieve successful outcomes. So this is about influence, it's about changing behaviors, it's about changing attitudes, and perhaps the people that are having their behaviors and attitudes being changed won't understand why or how or what changes are happening. Uh, it goes on, influence is defined as the capacity to have an effect on the character or behavior of someone or something or the effect itself. Uh, it goes on, uh, influence has many parallels with information activities which seek to affect the will, understanding and capability of audiences to change their behaviors. So I wanna uh, get some comment from Alex on this in a second, but I believe that this should be viewed uh, in the context of the integrated operating concept, which we've talked about many times on this program. Let's just bring it on screen and particularly this, this part of it because the integrated operating concept, which is 
forms defense doctrine in this country is based on the idea that home, that's the UK, is no longer a secure sanctuary where we may choose to launch interventions unhindered. Uh, and if they choose to launch interventions, in other words, uh, they don't want any opposition to those interventions uh, and home is no longer considered safe. So Alex, to my mind, this looks very much like a wargaming in order to produce uh, psychological operations against the UK public in order to produce a defence outcome, which perhaps the Ministry of Defence and the government would like to see. Would that be a fair assessment of what's going on? It's more than a fair assessment, Mike. It was stated as such in terms 40 years ago in Gordon Welchman's book. He was a GCHQ wartime code-breaking hero, a book called The Hut Six Story, which in the later suppressed final chapter uh, covered his rehiring 30 years after the end of the war, so in mid-70s, uh, by the Mitre Corporation in the USA. Um, he got into trouble for... Um, uh, his frankness about this, in fact, called FBI hassle. But he said that uh, by the mid 70s, early 80s, there was already this uh, accepted consensus in the US that the battle was among your own population and for their minds. It went underground for decades. It reemerged with some rather Tim Nice but dim characters in the British Army saying, uh, This is what we're going to do from now on. Everything's the grey zone. We've covered that for ages. And the latest incarnation of it is that the French and now the Dutch, in ways that we've covered this very news episode, are coming to the surface saying we can't have uh, anti-institutional extremists, we can't have people going against the narrative. In the case of the Belgian government, they're writing to their citizens that you lot are not performing according to specification, you're not producing enough money for the government per head of population, they're that honest about it now, But uh, all of that, so we're going to have to reframe your mind. But it's all come from post-war thinking, which ultimately comes from the Third Reich, uh, and I don't just throw that around lightly, we can trace the lines from the Forschungsamt, the, the Nazi uh, signals intelligence agency through to the corporations that really own the NSA because they have far more, far more staff than fully sworn NSA and GCHQ uh, civil servants uh, and who control the NHA, NSA and GCHQ data. That was in place decades ago and now the whole of NATO seems to be in agreement with it. Yes. Okay. Thanks for that. Um, let's uh, end, Debbie, with, uh, with immigration. Yes, uh, lots of talk at the moment. And as David pointed out on Monday, RAF Scampton is going to be possibly used to rehome asylum seekers. And I just want to bring everybody's attention to what's going on in Dorset, because the Bibby Stockholm is the barge that's going to be um, moored in Portland, just off the Dorset coast, Portland. Um, this is going to be home to 500 migrant men. Now, the population of Portland is 13,562. And the, what people are complaining about is that there's no infrastructure exactly the same as, the, as people in other parts of the um, country. The NHS is beyond capacity and there's been no consultation. It's all been very secretive. The MP, Richard Drax, He's also come out and said that this barge is not in the national interest. Now, at the moment, the barge, which you can see there is three stories tall, has 222 cabins. Well, if it's got 222 cabins and it's meant to be homing more than 500 men, then you can imagine the overcrowding. At the moment, it's in Dry Dock in Falmouth. I caught a piece on our local news last night on BBC Spotlight 
which just gave an idea of some of the funding. So you can see there that the um, government are going to give Dorset Council a one-off payment of £377,000, plus they're going to be giving them an extra £3,500 per asylum seeker. And this is to fund PCSOs, to give them English lesson lessons, and also apparently to organise um, activities However, Corporate Watch, um, I'm a great fan of watching for Corporate Watch. If anybody doesn't know Corporate Watch, please go and, and check them out because they do great exposés. They did a great expose on Southwest Water for me personally. So I know they're, they're very good reporters. They're honest and ethical reporters. They've done an expose on the 200-year family business behind the Bibby Stockholm. So what does the report actually say? The report says that it has been used as a floating detention centre in the Netherlands and Germany. Now, this barge, has, uh, it's had terrible things happen on it. It's non-engineless, so it can't move. Once it's there, it's there. Once it's moored, it's moored. There's been violence, uh, sexual exploitation, poor sanitation. There's also been um, a death where somebody didn't receive medical attention in time. But it's owned by 90% of the Bibby Line group is owned by the Bibby family. And apparently the migrants will be able to leave. But the expectation, and that's where the, 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 the word becomes very relevant, they're expected to return by 11 o'clock. And they say that there'll be significant surveillance. My question is, on who? Is this on the whole of Portland? Is everyone in Portland going to be surveyed or are um, asylum seekers going to be tagged? We don't know. So when you delve further into the corporate watch expose, you can see that there's been suicide attempts. There's been, again, you can see there there's been a death from no medical care. There's been abuse and plenty of people that have got experience of a kind of undercover expose of the Bibby are saying that it's not safe. According to um, Corporate Watch, it's going to cost 20,000 day, 20,000 pounds a day to charter and birth. And that equates to over 11 million in 18 months. And the other beneficiary is Langham Industries, who are an engineering company um, who have been given regular donations to UKIP. So um, keep an eye on what's happening in Dorset, because I think sometimes we we forget that Portland is only a small place and they're really fighting hard. No to the barge is where to, to look if anybody wants to make comments. And if anybody's watching and would like to comment and talk to us, then please get in contact. Um, Alex, have you got any thoughts on this? Yes, when that vessel or that class of vessels uh, was used by the Dutch and also by the Germans, but I know the Dutch situation better, better for prison uh, overspill, it became known as the bias boat, something that translates as the Nick ship. And there was all kinds of scandals from the left uh, about how this was unworthy and uh, in, indecent in people's human rights to put them on such barges. And of course, it all came out of the public purse. The same vessels have been repurposed for migrants. And Debbie's just outlined that the same interests and the families are behind it. And all of a sudden, we are to welcome it. Uh, because, of course, there's no shortage. And it pains me to say it, but the evangelical Christians are in the lead here, together with the the out-and-out -out Marxist P66 party, in saying, in terms, I covered that uh, a moment ago from that that's interview we, we just had with the youth wing leader of the Christian Union Party, saying so naively, um, there is no problem with the number of migrants coming to the country. It's just a question of forcing the councils to house them and spread them out fairly. So people that blinkered uh, have brought us into this position. The corporate interests just regard it as uh, places to stuff people into and make money.
But the difference, yeah. of course, this time is that there's a bottomless purse because of the human rights angle. Yes. Yes. Okay. Now we're just going to end with one one slide. We'll put on in, in one second. But the the COVID nineteen inquiry has been uh, progressing, as we all know. Uh, and it was interesting that uh, a few days ago, a couple of days ago, they were uh, covering the behavioural uh, aspects of this. Now they weren't. They even talked about the Mindspace document at one point. Uh, I think it was on Monday. Uh, but uh, they were not in any way negative about that. The the uh, uh, testimony that was being given was very. Uh, pro, uh, it seemed to be. Uh, but I just thought, Alex, I would ask, uh, since this is the 12th of July, and of course, this is uh, the, the famous day when the uh, Orange Marches happened in Northern Ireland, uh, who do you think would be the best person that uh, the COVID inquiry could decide to bring on to give evidence today? If you really wanted to rattle the cage, you would bring someone on like the political leader of Sinn Féin IRA, wouldn't you? Well, let's uh, just show the photograph then, because this is from the COVID inquiry this morning. And yes, uh, there is Michelle O'Neill. And that's exactly who they did uh, bring on to give evidence today. So uh, I doubt very much, Alex, um, you can correct me uh, on this. I'm sure it wasn't. uh, I'm sure it wasn't intentional. Oh, well, I mean, again, Dutch politics can do one better. Uh, on Good Friday one year, they brought out the euthanasia pill. And uh, the minister from that D66 party I mentioned who brought out the, the news that day actually used the phrase, it is finished, uh, to declare that the cabinet had, had uh, come to an agreement. And afterwards, she said, I had no idea it was Good Friday and I didn't mean any re- allusion to the, to the crucifixion by saying it is finished. So uh, if that can be... Uh, passed through, uh, got away with, then uh, you can get away with claiming it was simply a scheduling error uh, that Sinn Féin's leader uh, brought, was brought on on the 12th. Mind you, the BBC has just done a vault fast this year after several years of deciding that uh, the Orange Walk is part of Northern Ireland's cultural heritage and featuring it. They had a hand-wringing statement earlier this year that they would not feature any more parades because it was uh, contrary to the society that the BBC wishes to shape. Yes. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Uh, we've got to leave it there for today. So I'm going to say thank you much, very much to Alex, to Gvorg and to Debbie for joining us. Thanks to all you, uh, all our viewers for joining us today. We will be back in a couple of minutes if you're a UK column member for some extra. Uh, but otherwise, uh, we will see you at 1pm as usual on Friday. Uh, don't forget the interview at 1pm tomorrow in the usual places, ukcolumn.org slash live uh, and uh, community.ukcolumn.org slash live. Uh, we shall see you then. Bye bye.